Welcome to the Tilted Coaching Podcast and I'm your host, Sheila Walsh. My background is in coaching psychology and organisational consultancy. If it has something to do with people, I'm usually involved and interested, whether it is about personal development, professional development, leadership, relationships, managing or anything else that involves the care of people in some way. A friend of mine encouraged me to do this podcast because he believed that I should bring my insights and my understandings into a really simple bite-sized collection and this is what you have today. I hope you enjoy the Tilted Coaching Podcast. Please do rate us if you find it interesting and you can always pop over to our Patreon account to sponsor it. Okay, hello Anne-Marie. It's great to have you Hi, on Sheila. the podcast. Hey. So Anne-Marie, will you introduce yourself so that everybody listening has a sense of who you are and what it is you want to talk about today? Brilliant. Thank you. And thanks so much for doing this together. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so I am Anne-Marie Flanagan. I am from North Clare and I am in my mid-40s. I'm a mother of a fantastic eight-year-old boy, a partner to a great man. And I, I suppose I've been an activist um, all my life. I can't remember a time when I didn't feel that activism inside me. Mm. Um, I am a woman who has a disability of a physical impairment throughout my life. And um, I think coupled with, I suppose, coming from a family of very strong women, um, my grandmother on my father's side is, was one of my greatest heroines. And I suppose she would have led the charge in terms of women's empowerment, um, mm. even in a traditional way, but just always having a clear place in um, society and in family. And I suppose that kind of really um, informed how mm. I saw women and men coexist and share, I suppose, the universe and um also i think because of my experience i mean i come from a working class background i'm very proud of it but also all of that together um has i suppose driven me to want uh, i suppose a world a society mm. that cares for everybody in it so people of all experiences and of course the climate and species so that we live in harmony with each other but recognizing, I suppose, that um, for different reasons, inequalities do exist. Mm. And that by um, bringing forward um, the lived experience in terms of sharing that with others who are busy probably just living their own lives and not consciously excluding or, you know, mm. um, to, to have that voice. And also, I suppose, to be um, a peer for those who may feel, God, I couldn't speak up for myself or, you know, I feel dependent or don't even consciously know that that's what's going on for them. Mm -hmm. And to be in solidarity and sisterhood with people who um, experience inequality, whether that's women or women with disabilities or um, people who experience other issues too. So for me, that part of me, my yeah. empathic, um, responsive, part to relate and to support other people's empowerment empowers me and mm. it's something I feel very privileged and grateful to do every day mm. and it's something that you do in a number of ways because I know that you do it within your work but also mm. within your activism and then and for want of a better word but your politics I, I know that it's something that that travels throughout your yeah. your presence actually wherever you are <coughs> there's a there's mm. a uh, consciousness of that that you bring um yeah can I, can I touch on you said um unconscious of the inequality and I think that that's an important one because at the moment there's a lot of discussions about inequality and people are like what are you talking about because mm. it, it's not in their world in that moment or they they haven't that experience to see it so can you talk a little bit about that because I think that's that's where I think we're missing a lot of people is people who haven't grown up to see it and so they don't see it, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah, and I suppose that's something that I've been thinking about for some time now, 
because um, I remember when I started activism, you know, very, very collective action for me now that I reflect on it. And it's not that it doesn't need to happen, but what I very much embedded myself in is this idea of them and us, that mm. if I and others were excluded, that people were doing it purposely. And it was almost engendering this victimology. Um, and I participated in it for years. You know, they're excluding us. Men are bad to women. Non-disabled are exclusive of, of, non, of people with disabilities. And all of those narratives, people with privilege excludes those who don't. And most of the time, that isn't really what's happening. All of us grow up within a family dynamic a community, a culture, a norm. And most people are just doing their best. Mm. So I suppose I realized that um, along the way, and I definitely realized it when I met you <laughs> and the great work we did with lots of fantastic people as well. Mm. And, I, and I'm really glad now that, I, that that's where I come from now. And because I, this idea of blaming others um, for what they're doing to us um, and even I really want to um, even really continue to evolve politically around that, you know, mm. because I've often engaged with most fantastic people. And when I engage in a genuine, empathic, open conversation with people who years ago I would have campaigned against or criticized in terms of their politics, Mm. Now I, I realize that people, all, most people want to do their best within their framework. So we do have a framework, you know, we have a framework of how we see, what are, what's our lens, how are we mm. seeing the world? And then that's where people emotionally respond from. So, mm. and also remember, we, 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 we also have the idea of identity politics. And like, I'm certainly looking at that differently now. I, I, I do embrace it because I do have, I, I am comfortable with my identities. Um, but at the same time, I, I want to be more open about it and accept that those with different ideas of what that means or come together in action, that um, I think we're all trying to do our best. So mm -hmm. by having conversations, by being open to at least hearing why somebody considers something a particular way, then maybe together we can figure out actually common, a common approach to um, resolving issues mm. that maybe do exclude people or that do um, pitch people against each other or that do fear. Fear, for me, mm. I've realized is a big part of it. Um, and again, a lot of that is all unconscious bias rather than conscious intention mm. to um, offend, upset or exclude. Hmm. And I, I think, Henry, one of the, like, I'm not sure how long ago it was now when we worked <coughs> together, but one of the things that I, that, that I hadn't understood until I'd worked with you is that there, while I have an understanding of my experience in the world around me because of the way I access it and the way I hmm. see it and all of these backgrounds, that the very same space that is really good for me could actually be not allowing people into the room, literally and metaphorically. Yeah into the room and there's and, and I've spoken to a few people about this concept of sometimes it's where do you ask and what do you say because you also don't want to be offensive but you might not have the information to make a space inclusive across the board whether it's gender you know whether it's gender whether it's identity whether it's ability you know you sometimes don't have that information because it's not within your remit yeah. and unless you're seeking it out, as in seeking out to work with people who are different or to be in spaces with people with different lived experiences, we tend to just see what we see. So while it's unconscious, we still have the capacity to say, I only know what I know about me and the spaces I fill from my perspective. Mm. Um, and, and I think at the moment, there's a lot of in, in politics and in the media around a lot of that fear of, well, if we identify this and we acknowledge this, then it contradicts this. And how, how can we all coexist instead of what don't we understand? Or what is it I'd need to know to accept somebody's difference? Because difference doesn't mean that we have to agree. It means that we don't attack each other over it. It means that we allow people in the room. And, and I think that being exposed to different people's lived experience is probably key 
to the unconscious bias because I wouldn't have known and like obviously we, we still have unconscious bias that we have no knowledge of that's sitting there waiting for somebody to say something actually because at some point yeah. somebody's gonna say uh do you know what you just did <laughs> you know and and for that to be an okay conversation that's ongoing you know as opposed to sometimes there's a sense that it's not okay to get that wrong but for me it's like get it wrong and then correct it so that you can actually mm. become inclusive and I definitely found that from working with you and and in the work we did and in the personal side that there that the expansion of how I saw things did expand in terms of our work and in terms of how getting to know each other um and just put question marks I'd never considered before and and while I don't know the answers and and all of that those question marks are probably the bridge between where somebody else is and where we are just being open that we don't know what their lived experience is yeah that's huge i mean that is really really huge i mean um first of all i think there's there's the personal um engagement around all of this and figuring it out mm. and i think there's for me i accept that you know at a personal um individual level private level that um it is way more difficult for people to get that right and mm. to understand um to understand how to i suppose to engage to relate to include everybody okay mm. or include an individual's unique lived experience um i suppose for me then I think that we have a different role and responsibility when we take a leadership role, whether it's within organizations, whether it is in our practice, um, whether it is in policies and, and in politics. Mm. Um, again, I suppose I still come back to my, myself and I can only, I suppose, put an eye in this. And when I look at my own journey and my own process and my own, I suppose, um, openness, um, to recognize my judgments mm. and you know the freedom now that I have to be able to say to myself wow there I was trying or you know like relating publicly to all these issues that I understood that excluded people or, or there were barriers for people and mm. yet I wasn't um, reciprocating the same respect to those who didn't know, as you just mm. explained it. Um, and so I would go to anger, I would go to judgment, I would probably go to righteousness and, and be really critical. And I realized that didn't serve me. Um, mm. And so even, um, we'll say at the personal level, I think what I would say to people is have a conversation, ask somebody, what is it that you need so that you can feel that you are part of this party, this wedding, this celebration. That's the mm. personal. What is it you want? Because sometimes, you know, in the midst of feeling uncomfortable about not having everything sorted for someone, um, someone gets into, well, I don't know everything about this group of people. And before you know it, in the attempts to include, there's another layer of exclusion going on because, <laughs> and that's really interesting. So that's the personal. So I'd really encourage anybody was listening to this to just to say, I don't know, can you help me? Um, mm. And that in itself validates the, um, the ability of the other person to know for themselves what they want and need. Mm. Um, I think then at an organizational level, uh, there probably is a bit of duty of care to look at who is it that we are engaging with. And even in that, there is this, um, I suppose, still needs to embrace the intersectionality of everything we do so if we're working in a particular area with childcare or within mental health or within um you know supporting the impairments whatever the issue is supporting people who experience inequality or who come from a geographical area you know to really engage in what is it that every human being could need to come to be part of this process so that, you know, we include accessibility, we include gender, we include other issues that people who identify as 
coming from a minority group or cultural experience may need. And if we don't get it right, rather than getting defensive and saying, I didn't think of that, say, okay, let's be solution focused because that's where I come from. Let's look at what is the solution. Now, if we were just to bring it back to, for example, the particular issues that I talk about a lot in terms of my own lived experience of being a woman with a disability, that in itself has um, quite excluded um, the totality of what we can all do together. So in ourselves, you know, in our short time of being a strong movement, particularly in Ireland from, you know, there were definitely people trying to um, raise awareness maybe in the 60s and 70s, but it really gained ground and there was a lot of solidarity in the 80s, 90s and so on. And even because of our own internalized oppression, we ourselves were categorizing ourselves in terms of people with physical impairments, people with, who are deaf has, ha, have an own cultural experience, and then people who are visually impaired and blind and intellectual disability, and the hierarchy, and then the mm. gender-based hierarchy. And um, so I suppose we ourselves still have a lot of emotional recovery to do from the effects of being institutionalized, being deemed as um, asexual, being, um, I suppose, probably one of the most socially and politically and economically disadvantaged groups across the world. In the poorest countries, um, 1%, 1% of disabled women and men are educated. In, in, in Ireland, I was looking at statistics recently, so only 12% of people with probably significant disabilities or maybe disabilities, let's just say that, go on to second level education. Now, for me, that was quite a shocking 12% um, statistic. Only 26 of the adults with disabilities work. You know, so these are all, I suppose, issues. Um, I don't know if I'm going off track on the question, but yeah, these no, are all issues yeah. that inform why another person who doesn't um, have a relationship with personally or organisation or politically with people with different impairments. I can understand why um, why people um, maybe make value judgments that somebody doesn't want to be part of this. Mm. Um, and I suppose that kind of leads me on to probably what motivated this conversation is that I suppose I really work hard at um, not getting into the victimology around how excluded I feel from the women's movement. Mm. And um, listen, if you look right back to the history of the suffragette movement, you know, it was always a particular group of women who had um, financial um, and educational um, resources and capital. You know, I, mm. that, that's what she, that's the, that's the capacity part. And I understand and I get that. Um, I, I wonder, when do we say to our sisters, um, what about me? Or, mm. you know, can I come in? Can I be part of this? Um, and, you know, I suppose um, sensitive issues, even in terms of how we define care and, mm. you know, within the literature of um, feminism and gender equality, we look at the burden of care. And while it is um, an academic use of the word in itself, when it's used um, in um, policy, when it's used um, in, in, in a way that understands and explains, you know, where we are in terms mm. of the, the, the roles of men and women. Again, my lived experience, um, I feel really, really excluded mm. from that conversation. Um, and it really came home to me recently um, because the Citizens' Assembly at the moment is looking at um, gender equality, which is brilliant, and I'm delighted that it is. Mm. And I hope that it serves men and women equally. And I hope that it, in its response and its um, deliberations, looks at um, how we support everybody, mm. all parents, all workers, all volunteers, all family members who provide support. Because even in that, while we know that um, women, and I won't categorize at the moment, women have still a particular 
way of engaging with family and the community and in work that um, adds additional, for a lot of women, a significant amount of women, mm. additional responsibilities um, that, and yet less income. Right? So I acknowledge that. And for me, as um, a woman with a significant disability, as a mother, as a professional, I pay the higher rate of tax. Um, we have a mortgage and I still don't feature equally in that narrative. I, if I, in the literature I was reading because I wanted to respond and submit to the assembly and they're, they're calling for submissions, um, nowhere did it reference disabled women or women with impairments as caregivers, nowhere. And um, I suppose I reflect and I remember being in my 20s and being so radical feminist and you know remove the 42.1 article from the constitution that bounds women you know to mm. the kitchen all of that and um, having a very simplistic view but of course but idealistic and it was very exciting at the time and mm. I was very involved in the wonderful Clare Women's Network and we ourselves then were involved in so many different um, um, issues and campaigns and engaged the National Women's Council of Ireland and all of that and that was really important space for me um, and still so that's 20 years ago and throughout those 20 years what is interesting based on my experience and my understanding is that I feel actually there is almost um, um, a, a, a more of a separation mm. that has gone on for women um, with disabilities and the, um, I suppose, the broader feminist gender equality um, discussion and narrative. Um, so, <clears throat> of course, we have to organize, organize ourselves mm. um, and there definitely is work and research and um, reviews of policy around women with disabilities. Um, uh, for me, I want to be part of all of the discussions, not a separate piece of work. So why am I concerned? I'm concerned that last year when we were about to um, vote on a referendum that would have removed that article, um, suddenly um, a significant amount of the women's movement, the feminist movement, were saying, pause, there's other issues. And I accept there are other issues. Mm. So issues around and um, the responsibilities that women have that may not get recognized but then when I read some of the um, documentation and the literature and um, the, 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 what's going on in terms of trying to find the middle ground mm. um, it really went back to traditional language of caring for caring for um, dependent adults um, and, and, and then it went on to, to talk about disabled people mm. um, so I suppose that in itself is complex because we're not homogenous. We're all, you know, everybody's having a different experience. Mm. Of course, there are significant amount of people who have huge support needs. Mm. But as a rights activist in terms of the rights of disabled people, as a woman, as a mother, um, as, some, as an egalitarian, I wonder how helpful it is to... I, to in law, in our constitution, to embed care for adults rather than caring about everybody within a community that mm. is, um, re re you know, that there's reciprocity there. You know, how do we get there in policy and politics mm. without further um, diminishing the rights and identity and um, contributions that people with needs are because it suggests to me that if you have a support needs then that means you're less than others who may be providing the support and that doesn't sit comfortable with me and I need to I think mm. we need to figure that one out a bit better but even Amory when when you when you had said that I, I had not considered that even though I had read a piece I hadn't really clocked so that will tell you my lived experience didn't say this statement I read it and I was like right okay and carried on but the minute you brought my attention to it I actually went fuck wait a second now so we're saying that that people who need care therefore that's it like that's the full stop they're not a full person they couldn't possibly be also the care provider or 
you know, that they're, that they're, we're just looking at that polarized, this is who a person is. And, and to write that into legislation, and well, for A, it's in that legislation, but B, to, to write it in again without taking this into account, we're not acting it inclusively. Like, we're literally saying, oh, no, we only see somebody as one thing. And, and even as you started when you introduced yourself, like, there's a list, like, there's a list of, of, of care you have to give just within your, like, even if we don't touch your work, just because you exist in this world and we have to share you, there's so much more than one thing and to to keep defining things by by that one piece is dangerous it's another way of locking a, a proportion of our society into a, a box that doesn't fit that will have to be reworked and while we're looking at it we need to stop putting the box there as the standard yeah. like I was actually so a I was appalled I didn't notice it but that says that's the I there's nothing in my lived experience that would say that 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 word has way more meaning that sentence is saying something beyond it until you were able to say and that's why we need people with lived experience saying this but also we need people with lived experience in politics because while I read that it was neutral because I don't have the lived experience when you read that you knew what that represented because you do and mm. and that's where we need people with lived experience speaking for their experience instead of people speaking for others with lived experience and, and I think that that's a key piece. It is. It's really, really important. And I suppose then that allows me then to say that as a woman, as a disabled woman, as an egalitarian, um, I have accepted a nomination to try and at least contribute to that discussion if I get elected to running for the Shannon. Um, and that in itself is a really interesting experience. It's very, very difficult. To, to get support um, but I hope that you know what I have to say is interesting enough for politicians to say yeah we actually need this you know Anne-Marie can offer me the insight that I may not have and then I can offer her um, you know my role as a TD or as a councillor to bring forward the issues that are important to her you know so again it's all about that bilateral or reciprocity how can mm. we and work with each other for the common aim and the common aim is a just society where mm. we just all get on with our lives and there's mutual respect but I suppose going back to you know um, how do we how do we serve everybody isn't that it how mm. do we make sure that everyone's needs um, are Counted. respectfully bonded to and mm. um, so I suppose the first thing we need to do is and it brings me back to how I converse and the first thing we need to is to be in a space where it's okay to talk about emotional, difficult issues that are very personal to people. So, you know, of course, I fully understand. Oh, my God, I, with all my heart and empathy and sympathy at times, and the, the moms and dads out there who love their precious child or teenager who needs huge support and that deserves support but for me as a rights approach to it it's the child and adult or teenager support that I feel we need to focus on and then to a huge degree the 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 family members are supported or cared about what's happening is um because we have a system within this state that um, wants to recognize the work of family members who identify as carers because we know it's free labor. So of course then we need to validate politically, mostly tokenistically, the, the, the care approach. Um, and, and therefore the, if, I, if I give something to these people who identify as carers mm. and if I boost some of their demands or respond to their demands, it takes the pressure off us. But all the time, there's another human being or other humans beings whose lives, regardless of how much love um, a person is given, their lives, their autonomy, their independence, their privacy to make a decision. And mm. um, no matter how much support a person is, a person with an intellectual impairment who might be nonverbal, that person has the same feelings of fear and joy and love um, and family 
regardless how it breaks as you and me. Mm. And like, that's the human experience we keep forgetting to respond to. So of like, I've worked with too many people and advocated for too many people who say to me privately, I don't want mom or dad. I don't want my brother um, doing X, Y, and Z because A, I feel guilty. I feel bad. We're in each other's faces too much. You know, I, I, you know, I realize how she's worn out. So therefore I won't ask, can I do X, Y, and Z? You know, and then you have family members and they feel bad and guilty or they're getting old. And there's all this going on because we're forgetting that there are individuals with their own set of human um, rights and political rights. Mm. So um, I really do think that it's really critically important that um, the state responds um, in a way that validates and recognizes each individual's experiences. But at the mm. same time, if we're talking about care and thinking about putting it into our constitution, which is the statutory fundamental values for a society, then how can we value all of this and then by de facto devalue the human that's been spoken about. Mm. So for example, there's lots of, I have loads of conversations with um, parents of amazing human beings who have impairments or disabilities, whatever word works for people, whether it's mental health issues, whether it's physical impairment, whether it's an intellectual or both or whatever it is. Um, and lots of wonderful people say, I'm sick of my, the, the person I love um, more than anything being seen as less than their siblings. Okay, so Marie, there's there's a piece there that that I had said around um, people with lived experience being being the people who speak about their lived experience and the needs that are relevant. But what I have found is that sometimes in politics, mm. what happens is we give somebody that position, but we ignore all the other wisdom that they have about all the other things because we've decided that that's their position, whether it's LGBT. Yeah whether it's disability. So can you say a little bit to me, because obviously if you were in the Shannon, while you are very strong in your activism and you're, you're working towards inclusivity, that, that's obviously like, that's not the only thing that you are passionate about or that you care about. It just happens to be something you have a lot of information on and experience of, but you have like a wide variety of experience. And I just think that sometimes yes. we can just look at the lived experience. We bring people in with lived experience in a tokenistic way just talk to us about this and then you can leave again because this conversation <laughs> isn't mm -hmm. about that anymore but th that's not again the, yeah. tr the true picture of the full person so can you talk a little bit about what that means for you and, and what you think about that uh, yeah absolutely um and i suppose myself i have to um make sure that i um express myself in a way that um lends itself to um supporting another person to see that I'm a full human being and that I'm like in terms of my political activism in you know like like for me for example what I'd love to work on in the Shannon which is a huge actually part of um how I understand the world is is democracy and how people engage in democracy so um you know we have participatory and um, democracy of individuals and communities we have um, local government and we know that fantastic people don't really feel they have the powers. That's something that I really feel passionate about. You know, how does local democracy actually support our communities? And um, how do, you know, how do we, how do we support people to um, engage um, in politics in a way that serves all of us? Mm. So we know that, you know, we're lucky if 60% of people of the population um, engage in um, elections and vote and yet we know that those who are most marginalized and um, who who need to have a voice feel so disempowered that they don't engage in politics so I suppose again linking the two I feel that that's something that I can bring to the table and looking at you know how do we and um, if we if we really want um, a society that um, is representative of everybody um, then we need to make sure that we support people to engage in politics. And if that's casting a vote, um, if it's um, participating in the community organization, what do we need to do? So that's something that's very interesting to me. 
and I suppose I'm a mother and, and understanding what's going on for children and young people at the moment and how we support their emotional well-being, their physical activity, their educational choices. So like another really important issue for me is like where our son um, is um, going to a Catholic school and we are non-denominational. And, and even looking at issues like that around um, like having um, a secular education and embracing it. Now, of course, we're lucky he, he goes to a lovely small rural school and there's respect for mm. our choice, but it still doesn't um, offer um, him the opportunity to go to school where the main one, one religion is dominant you know mm. and I think that's really important and again I want to approach that not in a critical way because I really admire people of faith I mm. just think it's fantastic in fact sometimes I ask myself you know why don't I have more I wish I had it mm. <laughs> um, of whatever faith it is or whatever you know and um, spiritual um, experience i really admire people who give of that for themselves mm. that's not really the issue for me the issue is choice um, and genuine regard for it but within that then to um, have a system because remember this is children spend most of their lives until they're adults mm. in the system in the in an educational system so therefore um, you know, and there's, you know, there's it, the, the, there's policy legislation that recognizes um, the fundamental role that education plays in children's lives, as well as ours as families. So I suppose in, 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 in using more humanitarian values um, in the educational system mm. um, and to replace that with faith, because I think that's what religion, it served well. That's what people want, want for those believe. That it served that's what it served yeah you know, for those that it served um, well yes um so i suppose if you think about it like i my parents are growing older and i'm re i'm really really concerned about the lack of choice for older people and the supports in their lives to like i want to be able to grow um old with grace knowing that age doesn't diminish my human rights either and mm. um, but that it values everything I've done I mean when I look at our parents um, you know they did their best um, within the resources available to them within everything and they are entitled to age without fear age mm. with their support their age with dignity and people for example want to live in their own home in, in their own community and so again, here we are, um, running to uh, um, the 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 what I feel is so normative in Irish um, psychology, the Irish psychology. And I'm saying this now, and I am saying this with impact because it's I think it's an actually unconscious bias that certain groups of people need to be put somewhere. Oh, you know we did. To, we did it to, to, to young moms and they're having their babies. We are doing it to people who come for refuge to our communities. We're doing it to homeless people now. And we know we've done it since time immemorial to people with mental health difficulties mm. and disabled people. Locking people away is not the solution. So we have to, we, I do think we are duty bound, all of us. We don't have to be in politics. We can be the next door neighbor of somebody. We can can we can canvas we can um write an email send a text to elected representatives and say no i want everyone to actually have a choice of mm. where they live now for those who choose i know lots of people who go oh my god you know it's 85 years of age i'm ready to you know live in this place that's communal living and once it's done in a way that respects and values that person and they're treated and they feel safe and comfortable absolutely i'm not judging mm. that I'm concerned about the lack of choice and our, our, um, our political, almost unconscious um, response. You know, we have Slange Care. I think it's you know, the idea of every single party and political to come together and look at how do we respond to everybody across the age spectrum to make sure that our health needs are, are um, responded to. 
you know, mm. and, and that's really interesting. And again, within that, there are groups of people who aren't mentioned. So I suppose for me, um, I'm a human being. I live in a community. I um, care about my, um, my family, like, regardless of their age and what's going on. Um, and I have something to say about, um, I suppose, policy that looks at us all as um, valued um, human beings. And again, I suppose I understand the state has a, a, a probably a burden of responsibility to try and ensure that there are sufficient resources to respond to mm. all needs. Um, and within that, I think we need to continue to figure out how do we um, not move too closer to a capitalist um, way of looking at things where we value all of us as commodities. We're either someone that costs the state or we're someone who contributes to the state. When in actual fact, well, I'm both anyway. So I contribute to the state, I contribute to society, I contribute to my family, but also because of my support needs, I cost the state. But I want both to be valued. But mm. me, my um, human rights are diminished because both coexist. But mm. also for people who simply want to live a life that is self-caring, that is self-valuing. And if that is, um, is, if that is not inclusive of being able to work, then that should be okay. And mm. to me, and, and also, for example, I want to really look at, um, if I am offered this privilege and opportunity, I really do want to look at the connection between the intergenerational poverty that exists and supporting people to um, move out of that. And again, with young people, how do we ensure that young people are very proud of themselves, that mm. they have esteem, that they're entitled to make mistakes and they are our future. And of course, the biggest one of all is our climate change. I want the world to be here for my great-grandchildren mm. and their great-grandchildren. And mm. can I do my bit? Absolutely. Can we support others to do it? Does it need to be just? Um, and does it need to be fair? But again, going back to our very first part of our conversation, all of this to try and do it in a way that is solution focused. It's not problem solving or blaming. And um, mm. but we look at what is our collective end goal and how can we all contribute to it? But mm. I suppose for me, I want to be part of all of those conversations. Mm, I think that's fantastic. And you know, Emma, you said a piece there around, you know, that you're both you contribute in cost. Well, now that we know um, the, that there's, there's some statistics out there, and I'm not going to quote them because of my dyslexia, I'll misquote them and somebody will tell me. Um, but there are statistics out there in Ireland about how many of us are going to um, experience a, a disability for a period of time. So all of us on some level are going to cost the state. We're all at some point, if we're lucky, going to retire and cost the state. You know, we're going to have to access state and we do constantly access um, state provided services that we might not consider a cost to the state because we see it as our right to, to access it, but it's still a cost to the state. So while there are varying degrees of, of what the contribution and cost is, there's, I, would, I couldn't imagine a human being in Ireland, a citizen in Ireland, not being both, both in some form contributing, even if it's not financially and costing. So, so it, it, it's really important to think about that because you know, often it's easy to look at one part again of a person. So just the cost or just the contribution. But there are people out there who contribute in the world by being a family member, by the love they bring. You know, when we only value work as, as a contribution to the society, we mm. totally ignore the needs that, that go way beyond our financial needs. You know, the sense yeah. of belonging, community. So I, I just, while it's great that you're naming that for you, I'd imagine that there's a lot of people listening who go, who, who it doesn't click for them where their costs are, where they benefit from other people's giving, you know, because it's very easy just to look at what your, what your wages are or aren't mm. and what you spend them on or don't spend them on. Um, mm. But to be in Ireland, we benefit from so many subsidized services, you know? Um, yeah. So, so I just think it's important that while there's varying degrees that, that we actually get people to think, well, actually, where, if I was in another country, you know, 
I'm not going to name countries, but there's a, there's a particular very big country that if we were in, we have a very different, very different relationship with the type of care we receive. And I don't mean even healthcare. I just mean basic services that the state provide. Yeah. Um, and so while we may not be accessing them right now, we will all be accessing them at some point in our, in our citizenship here. I think that they're like, we totally agree on that. And I think it's something that, you know, I, what I, one of the, uh, one of the many um, reforms that I would love to see is that Ireland progresses quickly towards a statutory social services system. Mm. Um, if you look at services that are provided as a state right, um, even though there are lots and lots and lots of issues around them, um, so, for example, you look at mental health services, maternity services, um, you know, as cancer care services. We know that they're all um, a right and an entitlement to people. Now, the quality of them, that's a whole other discussion. Mm. But by being a state service, it allows people then to actually complain, to ask for a better service. And if you look at I'm just going to give an example in the, within the mental health arena that um, both you and I uh, work, worked in and it's been an amazing privilege and probably if I was to choose one of my top experiences in life it has been my 18 years of working in mental health I have mm. grown and known more about myself through that experience and when I sit with somebody I know I'm diverting now, but when I sit with someone and they're sharing I am learning about myself all mm. the time so to all who has ever accessed the service, it has been my privilege. You are my best teachers, and I'm very grateful for that. But what's fundamental is we're still trapped in the relationship between state, church, and charity. We must move away from that. That is not in any way, and I wouldn't, for those who give of themselves from a place of charity, for those of faith who have educated us who have provided with services i am not critical of you who have done us the service and mm. um, what i am critical is the lack of autonomy of the individual to have the unique needs met so mm. all the time when it's done from a charity perspective it's a group of people being helped by a charitable group of people and that diminishes the rights of a person to have a state service that is fidelity, that it's, it does what it says, mm. that I can um, evaluate it for myself, that I have protections, and that it is within the framework of a state legislative approach to how we provide services. Mm. So, like, I, I lived in another jurisdiction. Social services were, um, were provided through the local authority. So therefore, going back to our local authorities, our local elected representatives are crying out and saying, you know, the longer, instead of moving towards a greater local democracy, we're moving further away from people. And mm. you can see the impact on people. And that then goes into the pitching people up against each other. You know, we need money for this. Well, actually, we need money more. And it mm. isn't about one group being against. And we even know it, the very sensitive issue around homelessness. You know, there's a group of, there's people out there who absolutely believe that we wouldn't have homelessness if people from other countries didn't live here. They are two separate issues. Mm. So without overly getting into it, it is because we don't have a statutory footing of social services that recognized the specific needs. Mm. We have the issue, like childcare, people who take care of our children are paid minimum wage. And we expect them then to be psychologists, to be nurses, to be educators, you know. because and to be that, kind you know, they, <laughs> while doing all of that. To be a compassionate, kind, caring human being. Even in terms, let's go back to services for older people and, and people with disabilities and people with other support needs. A lot of the time, people who provide supports are so badly paid, are themselves struggling to exist. And they're expected then to provide an empathic, objective um person-centered service like honestly we have to start valuing all of these roles and mm. it will only happen when we take it away from charity organizations and um, or you know or else reform the organizations mm. who may feel that they're doing it well and ask them to come together and together with the state how do we um you know we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater 
people. Mm. We want to, um, you know, how do we garner the expertise and skills developed through that voluntary sector, NGO, charity sector, and together then recalibrate that to provide statutory services where people have rights and entitlements mm. to ensure that the money spent is done in a way that maximizes the person's desired goals. And for me, that is fundamental to shifting away from the paternalistic approach to yeah. our Irish cultural respond. So when it works really well, oh my God, we are the best country in the world. But when it doesn't work well, there's groups of people who experience really, really hurtful experiences of mm. abuse and neglect and poverty. And we mm. all have a duty of care to rise everyone up to the best of their ability and not look down and judge or fear. Mm. Mm. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So before we finish, I'm going to ask, is there any ask or request that you have for anybody listening to this today? Um, is there anything you'd like I to have, request? Yes, I do. I have, a, I have a couple of asks. One, I suppose I would ask all of you to just search deep inside your soul and ask yourself, um, I would ask all of you to search without your soul and ask yourself, am I having an empathic experience right now? And if I'm not, if I'm fearful, if I'm judgmental, and if I'm excluding, to be compassionate with self, to explore that and to maybe get facts around it and understand why that might be happening. So can I reach in solidarity and support to somebody rather than fear, judgment or pity? That's the mm. personal ask. Um, I would also ask, um, that from a very personal experience, if you like anything that I'm saying, and if you do feel that there needs to be an interesting voice in the Shannon, I'm boldly asking, and because okay. that's my title of my campaign, boldly going where others have gone before, I am asking you to pick up the phone or send an email or text to people who are elected in your area, councillors, TDs and senators, and saying, listen, this woman I find interesting. I really think she could really work well with you. Could you vote for her? And of course, to any LTD councillor and independent and party um, public representative, I would love to work with you. And I can't until you vote for me. So I would ask you to engage with me, contact me and um, ask me more questions. Um, and then I would really ask you to support me. Um, and together, I just want a better society for all of us. And to you, thank you. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Thank you, Amory. I'm going Thank to. You. Thanks for listening to the Tilted Podcast, and I'm your host, Sheila Walsh. If you'd like to sponsor the Tilted Coaching Podcast, simply pop over to patreon.com slash tilted coaching and sponsor the podcast for as little as a cup of coffee a month. If I didn't say it correctly, pop over to the link in the bio, visit the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Thanks a million.